Welcome to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. What you hear in the next hour could very well save your life. Now, here's your host, Sharon Kleina. I want to invite you to listen to the Sharon Kleina Hour, the power of water and water life science. I'm the founder of Biologic Aqua Research Center for over 45 40 years almost, and as far as the research is going in, 40 years, the research center a little over 30. I need you to know that when I started this radio show, it was to bring the best of the best of scientists, physicians, scholars, authorities that are studying and making a focus and a position in life of their commitment their journey, their mission to save lives and make life better. I've been calling it the Global Health Olympics for a long, long time, for many years. I was worried about the lack of health education. We're in a maze. We keep hearing so much, and it all kind of runs together like a maze. And we go out of, we don't take each part of our health and our organs of the body serious. We're all guilty. I'm as guilty. <clears throat> That's why I studied the way I started years ago. Bringing these people together has been an absolute unbelievable experience to me personally and to what I have been told by my listeners. Fascination, discovery, research, maybe some new knowledge, some new thinking. And that's what everybody has been sharing with us all these years. It's one of the most fascinating shows. I just hope you tell your friends, family, Facebook it, uh, tweet it, get it out there, because this show is dedicated to you learning more about from toe to head, some new thinking, some new ideas. All you have to do is turn it on your iPad or your cell phone to listen while you're traveling or in the kitchen. I've even had men tell me they listen to it as they shaved. So you can go, you can be listening to the show. But during COVID-19, have we been learning? Because I began to focus in on some of the things that I had learned in research through the years to bring the best of the most individual commitments and people who are dedicated, dedicated to research and to what they can do to share with other people and and come on and join us. Watch for the press releases. They go out all over the world with the information and the education. Your body is water. The earth is water. It began with water. 
W-A-T-E-R. I was talking to someone the other day, and they say, well, how self-conscious they are. Oh, how much water do you drink? Well, maybe three glasses a day. But I have juice. I have coffee. I have some tea before the day's over, and even a little bit of wine. Maybe if there's water in wine. And I said, why aren't you drinking eight full glasses of water a day? You've been falling down a lot. This is a young person. You've been falling down a lot. You've been in the hospital because of your falling down. Why aren't you taking that serious? Maybe it could be water. You're, you don't have, your doctors, come on. Maybe they should have been telling you, you should be drinking more water too. It helps you to be more agile. It's your immunity strength for the body. And more, water. We have people that come on that drink a lot of water. They're serious. And we've been trying to emphasize with the doctors to emphasize when they're working with their patients to remind them not to forget to drink a lot of water and how much water. Don't take it for granted. Don't blow it over like they should know. Remind them. I've even had some doctors that I knew that went to the doctor about some problems they were having to another doctor. And the doctor said, Dr. such and such, John, you're not drinking enough water. And the doctor would say to the other doctor, well, I get so busy. He said, well, you know better. You've got to drink more water. That's a lot of your problem. Once he started drinking more water, he had to admit he wasn't drinking enough for him. I've had people all over the world, from Japan and Brazil and all these different countries, I talk to individuals that I know personally. They said if I wasn't there to remind them, sometimes they would have forgotten as time went by. Don't forget to drink water. I get busy. We can't do that. Your body is made up of every single organ with a percentage of between 70 and the organ of the eye, a lot of people didn't know. The surface of the eye is 99% water, and your immunity strength of the eye is that tear film of 99% water. I found out from our guest today, Dr. Jill... Mayron, she taught me that the saliva is 99.9% water. Dr. Wong taught us, Dr. Wong taught us that when we're talking from birth, we have a spit. And whenever we talk, the spit comes out. That 99% water. Did you, and that, as we've been learning, is a carrier to a virus, a contamination. You may not get 
the flu yourself or the virus or whatever it is, but you could carry it with you having a strong immunity strength in your body, you may not get it. Dr. Wong taught us that we spit up to almost a full-size Coke can a day from our mouth to services. Now, we never heard that before. We're learning. And what Dr. Wong found out and some more research through the years, the saliva had been overlooked, the spit, for much more. And they're getting excited about some of the future breakthrough potentials that they're learning about diagnosis for more than just COVID-19 and carrying viruses and, and contamination. There's a lot to that nature's saliva, spit. Now, today we're going to have, and I'm really excited about this, Dr. Wong had mentioned her, Dr. Jill Mayron. Dr. Wong had said one of the best out there to talk to is Dr. Jill Mayron from Tufts Medical Center. She has been in research with children infants as a pediatric doctor studying, dedicated to the future of those babies growing up and some maybe some new thinking in the saliva and the spit. So today we're going to have Dr. Jill Mayron on, and I want you to get excited about what's going to happen there. She is full of information, education, and her tone of voice, you will hear it, the dedication, her journey, her mission for the university there and the research center is exciting with the commitment and what they're getting, learning about the future of that overlooked all this time saliva spit that should have been looked at with nature's blessing that was provided to the oral cavity of your mouth, your tongue, and your health. We're going to listen to our sponsor first, Nature's Tears Eye Mist. Your eye is surface is 99% water. The immunity strength of the eye to protect you is that 99% water. If it's over evaporating and it isn't supplemented by a, a mist of water, you could have dry eye and have an immunity weakness to maybe a virus and other contaminations. That surface of the eye is not covered by skin all day like the rest of your body. The eyelid opens. The technology that was invented to supplement that, that is global, to assist refractive eye surgery and dry eye, blindness, eye drops, and more, to assist it, to supplement it, is nature's tears eye mist with 100% T3 
tissue curls are great of water to supplement the organ of the eye for all ages, for all walks of life, to be able to assist them with just a mist, feel safe, comfortable, but it works. We'll listen to our sponsor, and we'll be back with Dr. Jill Mayron. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. That's SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Audience, I want to introduce you today to Dr. Jill Mayron. She's a professor of pediatrics and vice chair of pediatric research at Tufts Children's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And before she comes... I invite, um, introduce her to, there's been 121,010 babies already born today. And at the end of every show for all these years, I've always said, put a child's heart in your hands. They're all perfect. Dr. Mehran, Mehran, are you with us? I am, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, thank you. I know how busy you are. And when you and I talked recently, you got me excited about your dedication and your tone of voice, doctor. Would you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? We do this with everybody. And how you, why you decided to do pediatrics? Sure. I, I grew up outside of Boston. It's been my home almost all my life. Um, and I pursued my medical education really not necessarily focused on the baby, um, but I fell in love with taking care of babies. So I proceeded through a pediatric residency training and then from there did a fellowship in newborn medicine or neonatology. And my career has been focused on taking care of our very premature babies and our sick babies that are born um, all across the country. 
One of the things I've struggled with always with being a baby doctor is my ability to communicate with my patients. Uh, We often say that neonatologists are the veterinarians of medicine because our patients can't tell us how they're feeling. They can't tell us where it hurts. Um, and they really can't give us any direct information. And so this has been a challenge for me as a caregiver and has really driven me into the laboratory to see, well, how can I give these babies a voice so that I can better assess their development, I can better assess whether they're becoming infected, and it can help guide my care. And that those babies really served as my inspiration for the last 15 plus years in working with saliva or spit um, for this population to see if I could develop diagnostic platforms to take care of them. Good for you, because that saliva and that spit, um, is, when I was looking at the oral cavity of the mouth, And I often wondered why the dentist had not been educating people about the oral cavity. So I went in and studied way back in time when they invented the toothbrush and what they were thinking about all those years to finally, and what they were learning. Well, then when I got into the research of the tongue, and I noticed there were nerve endings in the tongue and there was this this saliva, this bit, and then I noticed that that baby, when it's born, it cries. And when that baby is crying, we all hear it in that crib. It's, our, it's their way of communicating and hearing themselves cry. They learn to get it. There's a tone that they pick up. And then when they get older, I noticed that when people get older, they have a different tone of voice. And that's why sometimes, Dr. We can run before we even know the person is in the room, but we hear them, we can recognize them by the tone of their voice. We all have a different tone. And that baby is doing something that is just a miracle of thinking with that saliva. So what a genius you are to think that way. Um, what are you learning now with the saliva? Because you're getting a lot of new evidence of some directions. Like when Dr. Wong was on, Dr. Wong taught us a lot and about the saliva, the spit, and what we needed to learn and why it was important to wear a mask and what we needed to learn to do. Um, he mentioned that when we talk, there could be a full, before the day is over, it could be a full-size container, like a Coke container, of spit that could be filled up in there. Um, now you're doing something so exciting about the beginning of our beginning, of those perfect human beings, and they're all perfect. Um, no, oh, con- what a journey, what a mission, what a dedication to take such a perfection of a baby uh, that is so all perfect and do that, Dr. Mayron. Tell us what you've been learning. You know, I think uh, the power of saliva, even in babies, and I, and I take care of babies that can be born very, very prematurely, barely weigh one pound, 
And the information, global information about almost all of their systems, their brain developing, their GI system developing, um, infection risk is all present in saliva. And we see very important signals that they are communicating um, through their saliva um, very, very early on. And I want to stress uh, Dr. Wong who's a good colleague and friend of mine doing amazing work in the field. Um, he works with older populations, and he may talk to you about the volume of saliva we as adults or older children can produce. What I deal with in my patients are literally, it's literally one drop. We get one drop of saliva, and from there, we're able to interrogate that saliva for a broad range of developmental signals, um, inflammatory signals, and it's also a rich source of microbes. You know, we speak about spreading COVID through saliva, but our mouth is just filled with microorganisms. And sometimes in these babies, we can detect perhaps what could be potentially harmful organisms that could lead to infection. When I started this work so many years ago, we were really questioning, well, what could we really see in just one drop? And, you know, at the forefront of this, even I was amazed at just how much developmental information that we were able to obtain from these babies. And we've been able to take that information and develop what we are working with our diagnostic platforms, one that looks at how babies are learning to eat when they're born so early because they don't know how. You mentioned that cry, and as mothers and anyone who's ever taken care of a baby know that cry when they're hungry and it's time to eat. But for my population, they don't have that sense. They're born too early to know they're even hungry yet. And so we've been able to use saliva to monitor them through that process and to understand how they go from a baby that has no inclination to eat or even knows how to eat to one that's going to cry every three hours for a full meal. We've also been able to you use know, the saliva. Gonna... Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. I was going to mention to you as I was thinking just as you were talking something um, that is um, uh, very fascinating too is you t- told me that the saliva is 99.9% water. Okay, the body is made up of a percentage of water per organ, and, and here we come to be born. And we begin that evaporation process from life to death and to dehydration of effects. The baby hasn't got the full amount of capacity yet, if it's born preemie, to have those organs really to... Um, to a position to give them the protection for their body to have immunity strength. And the saliva, and you can correct me, is the saliva the detection of what that body's doing to pick up on what have, for the, for the fact that it was born too early? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the saliva in these babies, we we talk about all of their systems are developing rapidly and saliva is providing us a window. But we also have to remember saliva is a filtrate of blood. It is that window into the body that we see. Mm -hmm. So even their salivary glands where the blood is coming through and helping us generate saliva, they're Uh not mature either. So one of the challenges I've always faced in the field is how saliva is changing week by week by week by week in its composition in these babies, which is very different than the adults. 
um, you know, we have mature salivary glands, we can filter the blood, we can get the signals and, and the composition in our saliva. Uh, but these babies, that changes every week. So one of the challenges I've always wow. faced was, well, if I study a baby born at 24 weeks, that's very different than a baby born at 28 weeks. And how do I understand those mm-hmm. differences and account for them in the science and in the data that, that we have emerging? How exciting. So you're learning how to take, when a, there's a preemie baby or a baby born with some real challenges of health issues of, of whatever description it could be. Um, you're able to start things to the saliva to learn more how to treat the baby as an individual situation, whether they're preemie or they were born a little too early and they had some weaknesses that you need to work on. Um, the saliva is giving you a breakthrough, it sounds like to me. I, I mean, you can correct me. No, it's giving us a huge breakthrough, and I think you really hit on it, Sharon, in the sense of our goal when we go into the the neonatal intensive care units is really to look at these babies as individuals and to personalize the care we give them. And one of the powers of saliva for me is not only that I can use it to monitor how they're developing and growing, but I don't have to stick them for blood. Now, we think Mm -hmm. of blood draws as adults, that's, you know, well, it's a little uncomfortable, but we'll get over it. These babies, it's not only about it being painful for them. They literally don't have the blood volumes to give every day after day. Okay, and in fact, they wouldn't. And the vast majority have to get multiple blood transfusions. But if we can take mm-hmm. saliva without hurting them, without sticking them with needles, and we can get the saliva. They, they will make more. We only need a drop to analyze them. And so we could go back in a few hours mm-hmm. and reassess them, particularly, for example, mm-hmm. if we're worried about infection, um, and never hurt them. This, for our babies, is just a huge breakthrough. Um, it is and- a huge breakthrough. And the parents are so receptive. I, I mean, I, I do a lot of research. We're working very hard to bring these technologies and platforms into our NICUs, but I need the families to be agreeable that we collect saliva right. so that we can learn. And parents almost, over you know, mm-hmm. 90% of parents never have a problem with me taking a little bit of saliva from their precious baby, whereas if I said to them, I have to stick them for blood repeatedly, that's, that's, that's much more difficult oh. to, to want to consent to. To me, that is exciting, Dr. Mehran. What you're doing is, um, I'm going to ask you something that when you were talking to, uh, with our excitement here too, or thinking about the future, what's coming, what's coming, what's coming, and more. And you keep studying, thanks to Tess and what you're doing there. And, and of course, these babies are the beginning of our beginning, of our, our the, uh, even healthy babies when they're born, to understand what's happening there, too. Uh, it's not just uh, the babies that are having challenges with preemie or some health descriptions when they're born that you have to work with. You've got the healthy babies they are going to learn more about, too, and um, helping those situations with life. Now, do you believe, is it possible, and I'm going to branch out a little bit on the branch, uh, that you'll be learning more about diagnosis of other diseases, other challenges that the uh, the infant may have as a toddler, 
with the toddler when you learn more about what they'll have to be aware of. Is that going to help with diagnosis? I believe so. And and some of our work, I I mentioned briefly about feeding and and how babies learn to feed. But sometimes, as you're pointing out, we even have term babies that have difficulty feeding. And and I'm using this as an example because when we think about how we all eat, we use shared muscles and nerves that also help us speak. And here, too, saliva is important with our speech, as you alluded to earlier. That taste on the tongue. Uh, whether we like it or not, begins to develop, right? Mm-hmm. And right. W- we're studying, too, with a, with a wonderful colleague of mine, Dr. Emily Zimmerman, who happens to be at uh, Northeastern University in Boston, is how do we understand babies who struggle to eat, how do we better take care of them at as their speech emerges. And so in partnerships with Dr. Zimmerman, we've been able to follow babies looking at salivary biomarkers that we believe are shared between the ability to eat and ultimately the ability for our speech to emerge. And one of the the keys here is, and, and we know this in early childhood development, when we understand there may be an impending problem, albeit sitting, walking, talking, or other neurodevelopmental um, and, and developmental milestones, the biggest advantage we have is early recognition for early intervention. And if I have the power before a baby leaves the NICU to alert the family and subsequent caregivers that I'm concerned about speech emergence, then we're not waiting until the speech is delayed, we have an ability to interact before we see that problem. And while we certainly mm-hmm. can't fix every problem, and I wouldn't ever suggest that, our understanding no. and recognition of it is essential in those early, early formative years where, where things like early intervention and developmental pediatrics uh, and parents just being aware um, to work with that child is, is so impactful. So there we go. Absolutely. A good record system to help the parents. Yeah, and uh, to learn, and then the the, the uh, other pediatric daughters, the uh, doctors, to be able to help them learn more. And um, what I'm, we're going to have to take a we're going to take a break here pretty soon. But I want you to think about this too as we're talking. Is it possible? Is it possible that when the baby's drinking the milk? that there's something in the milk that the baby may be possibly because you'd learn it more from the saliva, an allergic reaction to the milk. Well, we do know babies have... I know that's a little stretch, but I am thought about it because of nutrition studies going on. And I've often wondered if we're not catching soon enough with our toddlers, some of the weaknesses that they have with certain types of food that later cause a craving to the body. And I've tried to, to look at the body has a craving, and that craving begins somewhere, and that organism of the body craves. I, the palate of the tongue and those nerve endings and that saliva. Mm-hmm. 
could have a, another clue with your diagnosis there to think about for the future. And my thing, my, where I'm coming from, is I've noticed with people who become addictive, um, the body is in control of that person. Why is it none of their other friends did? But they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it with families that maybe one person would get the virus and the other members of the family won't get it? Um, is there something in the body's immune system, and especially when it comes to addiction later in life, with healthy, good, young, wonderful, sprying people that just maybe took something from the dentist's office for pain, uh, fell down because of pain, or social uh, peer group fun innocence, but they became craving to the addiction. Do you believe there could be a future study of all that going on with that saliva too? Well, that's a really uh, interesting question, and our lab does look at babies who are born to mothers who have had an opioid addiction. So I first want to say we do know, we do know in science and in medicine that there are certain genetic predispositions. So individuals who inherit um, a predisposition that would make them more likely to become addictive. Um, These, um, even some of my own colleagues have shown that you can see genetic variants in the receptors of these drugs, such as opioids, that may make you more likely um, to become addictive. Within breast milk, I don't think there's any one specific thing that's informing either likes or dislikes necessarily. There's food preferences. We know that, that if a mother likes certain foods, such as something that's very garlicky or something that has distinct taste, that itself can be passed on and can can shape taste in those babies. Preferences for smell, there have been some beautiful studies doing that in the newborn and mother pairs. One of the really interesting things, though, about addiction and food and taste preferences is a special area of our brain called the hypothalamus, and within that, we get our pleasure. We have our reward, so often many of us eat a chocolate chip cookie, and that feels great, and we love chocolate chip cookies or cakes or sweets or candies. Well, next to those food sensors are our drug receptors, and they... um, include the opioids, the cocaine receptors. And what we are looking at within the neonatal population is our babies who are born to mothers who are addicted to drugs, is there developmental cross mismatch that's occurring in utero while the mother's pregnant such that when the baby's born and we as caregivers work to wean the babies off of narcotics, does food become their drug? And we started this and line the saliva of work. Could, it could help the saliva us. Saliva yes. could be a detection to the to the helping learn with testing. Yeah, um, exactly. And, exactly. And, and we and are now I know, we're going. Yeah, we're going to take a break for a moment. Don't go anywhere. And it's the only one we'll take. And then we're going to come back and we're going to discuss uh, what the, you've been learning about the saliva, the spit. Uh, from the pediatric side 
and what huge breakthroughs this could be for good diagnosis in the future and for people to learn how to think about a healthier oral cavity, too, would be right back. Nature's tears I missed for immunity strength of the organ of the eye and its evaporation of the tear film. It's only product technology like it, 100% tissue culture grade, pH balanced, acid mantle protection for immunity strength of the organ of the eye. All natural, safe, just a supplement to the surface of the eye and the tear film. We'll listen to this, our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Dr. Mayron. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. That's SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Well, audience, we're today talking to Dr. Jill Mayron, Professor of Patriotic, Patriotics at, at uh, Tufts University and Vice Chair of Research at the Children's Medical School at Tufts in Boston, Massachusetts, and they've been, she's been teaching us about some real excitement for your education on the saliva and the breakthroughs that they're finding. Dr. Mayron, we were talking about the, the, the tongue and um, what happens or not and just on the oral cavity and what the saliva is doing to give you some exciting new diagnosis futures long-term that could keep growing and growing. Um, I've always learned that no two eyes alike, no two fingerprints alike, no two skins more. I'm sure that saliva gives a distinction of the individuality. Have you found that out? Well, we're starting, I think, and you're alluding to it, Sharon, you know, um, 
we're starting to understand the the microorganisms in the oral cavity. I think a lot of those will be distinct to the individual. Certainly, as mm-hmm. we look at what proteins and genes are being um, expressed in the moment, those will be unique to the individual. And of course, and I'm sure many of your audience members know, uh, saliva also contains your DNA, and that's the basis of all the Ancestry.com and 23andMe uh, testing platforms um, that that are out there, and those, of course, are unique to the individual as well. So, yes, saliva is unique to the individual on many, many levels, from the microbes that we see down to the DNA that that's in, that's present. Okay, so in the baby that you're studying. Whether the baby is premature or full-term, you're learning more now thanks to your research in saliva. Tell us some other things that you're learning. Now, I brought up nutrition, the, the food, the craving and the food, and you were teaching us there that definitely we all have. In fact, doctor, I have to tell you one, I've had um, individuals who are assigned research in nutrition and, uh, well, different ones, and then I'll ask them, different doctors from all over the world, I'll say, what do you crave? And they'll say, one of them will say, oh, chips, or another one would say, chocolate. And I've had many. One said, oh, I've never had a craving. I said, are you sure? <laughs> no, I've never had a craving. I started laughing, and I said, Howard, are you sure you haven't had a craving? Well, chocolate chip, uh, um, um, chocolate. He said, uh, M&M's, when I have one, I'm going to eat the whole bag. Uh (laughs) He didn't want to, and we're all, have you ever noticed when we, we reveal our, secret about what we crave. We don't want people to know we eat, want to eat that much. <laughs> yeah, I know. Or it's bad for you. As a doctor, I love uh, French fries, even though I know they're bad for me. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And, oh, uh, don't forget a little bit of salt. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> I know. We're only, we're, only, uh, we're only human, and now we're learning human with that saliva and that palate yeah. of the tongue. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think, Sharon, you're bringing up one of probably what I would say was one of the more significant findings we've ever had in saliva of babies, and it relates to the gut-brain access that um, saliva is integral to our stomach telling our brain it's time to eat and, and vice versa, it's time to stop eating. And when oh. I, and I've, I've alluded to this in, in, but earlier in our conversation about babies born really early don't know how to eat and they don't know they're supposed to eat because they were supposed to still be in that protective womb of the mother, provided all the nutrients through the placenta via the mother. So there was no need to feel hungry. There was no need to know how to eat effectively, um, but yet then they, mm-hmm. they're born. They're born all of a yeah. sudden, and um, I think people are always shocked when you enter into a, an NICU or a NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, versus a well baby. A well baby nursery, you hear all the crying. All the babies are ready to eat. All the babies are ready, and you walk into an intensive care unit, there's silence. 
Because if I weren't oh. eating those babies, they're never going to cry to eat. They don't know it. Uh-huh. And what we were able to see in saliva was just the development of that gut-brain access, the development of the hunger signaling that was occurring. So when they were born at 24 weeks and there was silence, by the time they were ready to leave the unit, they were screaming. And what we could see were the really important developmental genes that were being turned on. Oh, the baby is really crying, screaming. Yes, yes. And, and, and people are shocked. You go into the NICU, what you hear are just the sounds of the machines beeping or the ventilators breathing yeah. for the babies, but you don't hear them crying. And eventually yeah. they get there. They get there. And really what you're talking about, preference, craving, all of those things are related to the gut-brain access. And in our mouths, all of our uh-huh. mouths, that saliva has those signaling. And it's very important for us to know when it's time to eat and when it, time to stop eating. And then, of course, as we were talking about mm-hmm. before, in drug-addicted babies, that signaling gets crossed. And a lot of our babies who, as we wean off of those opioids, they start to eat excessively. And we have yeah. hypothesized that the food has now become their drug, and we're really making breakthroughs in that area, in the field, with, with important publications coming out this year and, and additional funding wow. um, to look at that. Um, so. And you know the pandemic is a sad situation all over the world, but uh, research has been for the first time opened up like a like a channel of everybody getting excited to study mm-hmm. and collaborate more than ever in history. What can we do? What can we do? What can we learn? And then as you're going along, you're trying to educate others in the medical field, and research, but you're also trying to educate your population to keep them going in what you're trying to learn. It was opened up more than ever in history because of the pandemic to, to learn. Let's get going. Let's get the funding. Get what you need to learn. And it takes money to learn. You can't mm-hmm. do it without money. Okay, now, coming through the baby, and it's getting better, and it's learning the instincts of when to eat, um, listening to itself, cry. Uh, when, how long does it take the average baby to develop through your research, through the saliva, as you're learning now, you're learning through the saliva more than what's been done in the past, let's say, or you already had it, but nobody wanted to live. Now, I'm going to go there for a second. You might have had been learning, 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 but who wanted to listen to it, Dr. Mayron? Who wanted to listen? Did yeah, anybody so listen that, well? No, that's a... <laughs> That's a great point. So I've been in this space for 15-plus years uh, for the neonates, and it is um, the audience is starting to come around. And I, I have to say that the National Institutes of Health, NIH, has been an extraordinarily uh, important champion of my work, really going back to 2008. And we talk about funding and Without the government understanding the impact that this science could have for the field, I wouldn't be here today. 
Um, but wow. it does, as you pointed out, take money. Mm-hmm. So we've been dependent on foundations such as the Gerber Foundation, which has been enormously helpful mm-hmm. for my work. Um, philanthropy, mm-hmm. I can't say enough. I mean, we are dependent upon individuals who are excited about what we're doing and want to donate so that we can move it further faster, particularly anyone who's been affected by prematurity and really can understand, mm-hmm. gosh, if, if you could just take saliva and not blood from my baby, that would be amazing. Right. Um, well, saliva being a detection is growth and time. Absolutely. From a baby becoming a toddler, a baby becoming a young, young uh, uh, person and, and watching them grow. Um, let's say they go to the doctor with just a common cold or a flu. Well, all of a sudden, they can learn to take a saliva test and see what is happening here. How did it, how did it uh, diagnose and then also what to prescribe? Now, there's yep. the other one. It they, could learn more about what could be prescriptive for the person to be able to handle, to be able to work for them. Maybe it, a lot of our medications work for somebody somebody else, but they might not work for everybody. Would that help narrow that in? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think as we think about this field and how to integrate it into pediatrics and you talk about what it's mm-hmm. taken even to get this far, um, it's been collaboration with dentists who really understand, like Dr. Wong, oh. who you've had, who have really, yeah. you, you know, I remember the day I called up Dr. Wong. Uh, he didn't know me, and here I am a neonatologist. You have to understand, not only am I not on his radar, my patients don't have teeth, so I'm really not on a dental um, experts radar, mm-hmm. but he joined in the cause. When we talk about toddlers, as you just mentioned, really companies coming out to say, well, how do I collect saliva from a toddler? They're not going to spit for me. I don't want to traumatize them. So I had a company work mm-hmm. with me, Oasis Diagnostic, headed by CEO Paul Slowey, who said, well, let's make a pacifier. So you could give that toddler a pacifier oh. and they oh. could suck on the pacifier. And well, you know what it's doing? It's stimulating those nerve endings to be able stimulating to get them and to work. And it's collecting the saliva. Yeah. The actual um, hub yeah. of the pacifier is fenestrated yeah. or has little holes in it. And in the center is an absorbent yeah. sponge. And as they suck on it, they're able to get the saliva. And so we've been able to... The reason our field is moving forward is one, you know, you know the scientific governing and funding agencies who have who thought this is good, strong science and worthy of funding, the foundations, the philanthropy, the dentists and our collaborative nature and industry coming in mm-hmm. and saying, you're on to something. How do we really translate oh, this? How do we do it? Yeah. Exciting. Exciting. What a mission. Yeah, Did you ever think when you started this, Dr. Mayron, that you'd be the... What you're, what you're talking about today now and what you're learning today and being able to assist more with the future of more um, pandemics, more problems, more situations, what's our di- descriptions of diagnosis to help all walks of life yeah, and, I and think- assist the rest of the world. Now, who, who, is the rest of the world studying with you too? Because this has got to be... Very exciting breakthrough and announcements going on with this discovery. Yeah, we've 
we are people who study saliva. We're not an enormous group, but we're very powerful, <laughs> yeah. and we're certainly an international group. And we have meetings worldwide. Yeah. Before the yeah. pandemic, I was in India speaking at the Indian Saliva Symposium. I've been all over Asia speaking. Europe has a saliva symposium. North America has a saliva symposium that I helped found. You know, so we get together, we gather, we share, and I think. And I've mentioned 23andMe and Ancestry.com only in the sense that when those companies hit and the public could realize they could spit in a tube and in a matter of weeks not only understand their ancestry but their health risks, now now the world was understanding how powerful saliva was. And while those companies are looking at DNA, and and we often look at other things like protein and microbes and some other um, hormones in saliva, you know, what those companies did was it it taught the the consumer just how powerful saliva was. Because that was always our hurdle. Okay, we only have a minute left, believe it or not. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> everybody, everybody tells me that because they could go so fast. Now, tell us why you would say how important it is to learn for the centuries and centuries that have been going on for other cultures and populations around the world who had already learned about the mask. Why would you recommend the mask well, to wear now? Well, no. Yeah, for for COVID, there's absolutely no question to please, please, please wear the mask. This is the most effective means we have to contain this virus. It works without question. It works. And if we are going to stay open as a a world and, and for our economies worldwide, it is our responsibility to wear that mask. That's going to keep us open. It's going to keep us safe. It's going to keep our hospitals flowing, our ability to take care of patients um, intact. Mm-hmm. And I never mm-hmm. leave my house without a mask. I don't even care if I'm walking mm-hmm. in the park. I have a mask on. We need to protect each other, and we need to protect ourselves. Without and even when the COVID-19 begins to begin to slowly, but diminish other cultures of the world way back in time, wore their masks during seasons. Many people thought it was because of pollution in the air. It's because they may feel that they may have a, a um, contagious something themselves, like a cold or whatever, or, or they wanted to protect themselves too. So Absolutely. they learned long ago why. But, of course, they had certain crises that taught him that, I'm sure. Now, I want to thank you for coming on today. What an exciting education to a population out there. And our show does go global. So I want to thank you so much for what you're doing. And you tell everybody that, uh, and I hope you can introduce this to somebody else, that you think that would be also a good educator. But keep up the hard work, the good work, and there could be a Nobel award, award or nomination out of this for you, doctor, and your team. I want to You're thank you. Thank you. It was a real pleasure, you. a real pleasure to be here today. Thank you, you so much. You be safe and be well. And God you bless. You too, Sharon. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I want to thank you, audience, today. Wasn't that something? We're going to have a lot more coming with scientists all over the world to teach us why we have to think about nothing more than those children. A child, put a child heart in your hands, and they're all perfect. And by the way, 
I think all of you are too. We grow up from children, from that baby, and we're learning more about what I call the Global Health Olympics. Thank you for listening, and you be well, and you stay safe. Bye. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for another edition of the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel with an encore Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember to visit Sharon's website at SharonKleinaHour.com. 